We gather to praise Jesus, but also to praise the Father, because through Jesus' death and through His resurrection, we as His people have life. We see these glorious realities on display in our passage this morning, John 11, 45-1236. So would you please turn there in your Bibles. In our passage this morning, we will see Jesus walking step-by-step, knowingly, towards His own imminent death. Jesus, knowing He is about to die, will walk to Jerusalem, the place that He knows He is appointed to die. Jesus, knowing He's about to die, is traveling towards the hour of His death. And He does so willingly. King Jesus dies. And He does so not as an unknowing victim of circumstances, not as someone who was outsmarted by the religious leaders or by Judas. He went willingly by the will of the Father. And King Jesus did this. He took step after step leading to His own death to save us, God's people, but also to glorify His Father. This love, this ultimate gift of Jesus ought to create a response in us, as we'll see in our passage. It ought to lead us to honor Jesus with the absolute best that we have. It ought to lead us to serve Him, even giving up our own lives. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet following Jesus, it should lead you to believe in Him. But let us see this in the words of Scripture. Don't just take my word for it. So would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word and let us see Jesus' great love and Jesus' great glory on display. We read this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, 
and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. When he walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our passage this morning consists of a number of different scenes. There is the scenes of the religious leaders conspiring to kill Jesus, and then later Lazarus. There's the beautiful scene of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with extravagant perfume. There's the scene of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowds waving palm branches. There's the scene of both Jews and Greeks coming to see Jesus. And there is, of course, Jesus' own teaching. And all of these scenes are focused on Jesus' upcoming death. On His death to save God's people and bring glory to the Father. They're all connected in this way and they all serve to highlight what Jesus has come to do. They serve as a pivot point, and for the rest of John's gospel, it will be barreling like a freight train towards his death and then his resurrection. And so the first thing that we need to see clearly is that King Jesus, and he is king, came to die. He came to die to save. He came to die to glorify the Father. This is made clear through a number of ways. It's made clear first through the plotting of the religious leaders in which they speak better than they know. We talked about this briefly last week, but we see that Jesus throughout John's Gospel has been doing these miracles. Miracles that show Him to be the promised Messiah sent from the Father. And that as Jesus is doing these miracles, some doubt, some reject Him, but many believe. And this creates a lot of heartburn for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees and the chief priests, verse 47. These were two groups that normally did not get along. They didn't agree about which books of the Old Testament constituted the Bible. They didn't agree about some of their doctrines of God. They didn't agree about their beliefs about what would happen in the end. But they, despite their strong disagreements and despite their strong hostility to one another, were united by a shared concern about Jesus. They were worried that if Jesus' approval rating kept going up, that it would lead to religious and cultural unrest. And that this cultural unrest would lead to the Romans cracking down, tightening the leash, and so removing them from their positions of power, but also they feared killing many of God's people, Israel. We see these concerns in verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And that's a problem because the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so in light of this fear, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, came up with a solution. He said, You know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas sees a source of salvation for God's people. And what is it? That Jesus die. It says Jesus must die so God's people may live. Now Caiaphas thinks this will cause the people to live by preventing the Romans from killing everyone. But John tells us that God was actually speaking through Caiaphas when he spoke of Jesus dying for the salvation of God's people. 
We read verse 51 that Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord. It wasn't just something he came up with out of his own head. But being high priest that year, he prophesied what? That Jesus would die for the nation, for Israel. And not for the nation of ethnic Israelites only, verse 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So God was saying, yes, Jesus must die that God's people might live. Jesus will die that God's people might not die. And not just ethnic Israelites, but those from all the ends of the earth, from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will believe in Him. He will gather them into one. And so through the plotting and scheming of the religious leaders to kill Jesus, God was actually at work bringing His plans about. The Father was using Caiaphas and the chief priests and the scribes to bring about the the plan of salvation, to bring about Jesus' death that God's people might live. And so the plotting is no surprise. The scheming was no surprise to the Father. It was no surprise to Jesus. Jesus was aware of what was going on the whole time. But Jesus knew this was the path He would have to take. That salvation would come to God's people only through His death. And so He walked a path that He knew would lead to His own death. (coughs) Excuse me. But we see this emphasis on Jesus' death not just in the plotting and scheming of the religious officials. We also see it through the time setting of what happens in the rest of John's Gospel. We're told, verse 54, that Jesus therefore, because He knew about the plotting of the leaders, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Instead, He went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and He stayed there with the disciples. So He gets out of Dodge, He lays low for a while, but then at the proper time, and Jesus will again and again refer to the hour that has come, at the proper time Jesus began the journey into Jerusalem to go and die. And that time, we're told specifically, verse 55, was Passover. That may not seem like an important detail to us, but it's vitally important to understand what's going on. Passover was the highest of the Jewish holy days. A day in which they looked back and remembered God's great act of salvation for them from slavery in Egypt. And that salvation came to them through death. Through a lamb sacrificed by each family that God might pass over them because of the blood of the lamb. And so they might live through the death of this lamb. And they would remember this every Passover, how God had saved them through this sacrifice. Jesus, earlier in John's Gospel, has already been identified as the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. And now He intentionally enters into Jerusalem, walking the path to His death at Passover as the new Passover Lamb who must die that God's people might live. Jesus' path to save God's people runs through the cross. And He is coming to die at the very time that God has appointed that we might see that His death was a sacrifice for our life. And so Jesus began the trip to Jerusalem at Passover 
knowing the time was coming for his death, and yet he took each step out of love for us and out of love for the Father. What greater gift could be given than Jesus giving his life for us on the cross that we might live? What greater act of love, what greater act of loyalty to the Father, what better way to glorify the Father who sent Him? We serve a loving Savior, a glorious Savior, a Savior who willingly went to the cross that we might live and might not die, who died that we might be passed over, that we might live. So how should that cause us to respond? What should our response to this dying Jesus be? Well, if we're believers in Jesus, I think one of the most fundamental things we need to see is that we should honor Him and honor Him with our very best because He gave the ultimate price for us. And I think we see an example of what that should look like in the story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume in verses 1-8. through The stage is set in verses 55-57. through That Passover has come. Everyone's wondering, is Jesus going to show up? It was expected of all good Jewish men that they would show up at temple in Jerusalem for Passover. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, we're told, verse 57, to in, that anyone who knows where Jesus is should inform to them so they might arrest Him and ultimately kill Him. But Jesus, knowing even that there's a warrant out for his arrest, a bounty on his head, begins the trip to Jerusalem, and six days before Passover, he arrives in the town of Bethany, which was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, about two miles away. And he is waiting for Passover to come, and so he has a dinner with his beloved friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus just from last chapter. Lazarus had died, but Jesus, by His great power, had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so I don't think it's a stretch to think that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were really grateful for that. And because of that, they gave a dinner for Him there. We're told verse 2, So, because Jesus raised Him from the dead, they gave a dinner. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with Him at the table. That was normal back then. It wasn't like today where your grandma says, sit up nice and straight at the table. The normal pattern was you reclined as you ate. And as Jesus is reclining at this banquet held in his honor, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes. And we're told, verse 3, that she took a pound, a Roman pound was about 12 fluid ounces of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Nard was a plant that grew in India. It was very expensive to import to the Mediterranean, but it was very valuable. And so they would take the extract of this plant and turn it into perfume. And the value of this perfume was incredibly expensive. In fact, we know from Judas's comments later that the value of this perfume that Mary's pouring out was worth about a year's average wage in Judah at the time. A whole year's wages in one jar of perfume. And she pours it out. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. This is a mark of great honor. She's giving Him likely the most expensive thing that she has. The most beautiful thing that she has. 
She's honoring him, anointing his feet. It's a show of respect to him. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The beauty is on display. Everyone can smell it. But there's an objection. From whom? Judas. And his objection, it's not a good faith objection, but his objection is essentially that this is much too extravagant a gift to use to anoint Jesus. Saying, why would you spend all of that, that valuable gift on Jesus? Surely this could be used to better purposes, Judas says. Surely we would be of better use to sell it and give it to the poor. Now, Judas's objection isn't out of some heartfelt love for the poor. It's because he had control of the needy fund and was embezzling from it. But his objection is still the objection that this is much too extravagant a gift to use to honor Jesus, right? That's his objection. But is it? Is this just a waste on Mary's part? Has she wasted something very valuable on someone who doesn't deserve it? Jesus says no. He makes clear that in light of his upcoming death, this gift is not too extravagant. In fact, no gift is too extravagant. He said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him in less than a week. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be buried. He knows that their time with him is short. He sees what's up ahead, even though they may not have fully. And he says, in light of my imminent burial, in light of my imminent death, this gift, this valuable gift is not too extravagant. This gift is appropriate given the price I'm going to pay, given my limited time with you. In fact, it's even a higher priority to honor Jesus because of his death than it is to care for the poor. Jesus is not here saying the poor you'll always have with you, so don't bother taking care of them. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 11 where Moses says, the poor you will always have with you, so you ought to take care of them. So he's not saying the poor aren't important. He's not saying that it's not a good thing to take care of those in need. He's actually affirming that it is. But he's saying even as high of a calling as caring for the poor is, even though Moses tells us to do that, that a higher priority, he says, is to honor him. Because Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. No gift that we could possibly give him is too much. No gift of your time, no gift of your talents, no gift of your treasure is too extravagant to honor Jesus who gave himself to you. So give Him your best. Mary honored Him with her very best. That's likely the most expensive thing they owned, probably unless they were a very wealthy family, was some sort of family heirloom that had been in the family for a long time, or maybe was set aside to prepare for their own deaths. Mary gave her best to Jesus. And so should we. After the sermon, we're going to sing when I survey the wondrous cross, and I think this gets at some of this. The writer of that hymn says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And then the final verse, he talks about this idea of giving a gift back to Jesus who died. 
It says, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I had everything in the whole world, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In light of Jesus' loving gift for us on the cross, no gift is too much. No gift that we could give is too extravagant. And we should give all. We should give our very best out of gratitude to Him. King Jesus died to save God's people. So let us, God's people, honor Him in response. The story goes on to emphasize Jesus' kingship. We see this in the triumphal entry. A kingship that brought great praise and public acclaim. And yet a kingship that was devoted to salvation. A saving kingship that defied expectations. And here we'll see our second response to Jesus, the saving king. That we should honor him, but we also should serve him with our whole lives. We're told that news of Jesus' arrival in Bethany got out. Couldn't keep it a secret. And when the large crowd of the Jews, these are those from Jerusalem, learned that Jesus was there, they came. So they flocked to the door, not only to see him, but also to see Lazarus, verse 9, whom he had raised from the dead. They want to see the proof positive that Jesus has really done this public miracle. And this causes even more heartburn on the part of the chief priests. They decide, well, Lazarus is a source of belief, so we don't just need to kill Jesus, we also need to kill Lazarus too. This is some of the first persecution of Jesus' followers, not just Jesus. And why? Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So there's Jews coming and believing in Jesus. And then the next day, Jesus enters with a large crowd that had come to the feast. And as he enters into Jerusalem, he's acclaimed as king. We're told they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All of this is focused on Jesus as king. The crowd is quoting, when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from Psalm 118, 25, and 26, which was a royal psalm that was used likely for coronations of Davidic kings, in which the people gave thanks to God for sending a king who would bring them salvation. So they're quoting from a kingly psalm. And they add to the quote by explicitly identifying Jesus as whom? The king of Israel. That's not in the original psalm. The original psalm is, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they explicitly say, yeah, that king that Psalm 118 is talking about, that's Jesus. And yet this king that they're referring to comes in the context of salvation. Psalm 118 talks about how this king will come and he will rule and he will save. Jesus himself emphasizes this theme of the saving king through his own actions by riding in on a donkey. We're told, verse 14, that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. And then he quotes from Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. 
So Jesus, as he rides in on the donkey, is saying, I am the king you've been waiting for. And yet he's saying more than just I'm the king, he's saying I'm the saving king. We don't have time to preach a sermon on Zechariah 9.9 today, but if you were to go back and read Zechariah 9, you'll see that the promise is that God would send a humble king riding on a donkey who would bring salvation to his people. And so the crowd is saying Jesus is the king, the saving king. They're crying out Hosanna, which literally means God save us. They're waving palm branches, which were a sign of God's salvation. Jesus, in riding the donkey, is saying, yes, I am the king who has come to save. And yet there's indications that the disciples and likely the crowds don't really understand what it means for Jesus to be the saving king. We read verse 16 that his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't get it. But when Jesus was glorified, which is a reference to his crucifixion, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what John is telling us is that Jesus rode in as king. People said he was king. Jesus claimed to be savior. They were saying he's savior, but that the disciples at least didn't understand what that meant. And that they only understood what that meant after Jesus died. After he was crucified. Because the way Jesus brought the salvation to them was through his own death as their king. It's likely that the disciples and perhaps many of the crowds thought of Jesus as the saving king who was going to come in, kick out the Romans, and rule by his great power. That they didn't expect that he within a week would be dead, crucified on the cross. Their conception of Jesus was a savior king who rules and reigns on the world's terms by great power and strength, not one who saves by dying on a cross. And yet, as Jesus comes in, we see that more and more people came to believe in him. The crowd that had been with him in Bethany when he called Lazarus out of the tomb bore witness, verse 17. The crowd from Jerusalem went out when they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees keep despairing and say, we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Like, we can't stop this guy. And then after saying the world has gone after him, not only do Jews show up, but Greeks show up. Verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And the Greeks come to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, and Andrew tells Philip, and Philip tells Jesus. So it's Jews coming to faith in Jesus, Greeks coming to faith in Jesus, John's already told us with the scene of the plotting that Jesus came to gather into one both Jews and Greeks through his death. And at the arrival of these Greeks, then Jesus explains to the disciples how he is going to say. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, I will be like a seed. I will die. And through my death, many will come to faith in Jesus. I will bear fruit through my dying. My mission is a death mission. But that's not just my path, Jesus says. My path to death, to glory through death, is not just the path I must follow if I will glorify the Father. That's the path all of my servants need to follow too. If you want to respond rightly to Jesus, you must serve Him. And that means going where He goes, following in His steps. 
After just speaking of his own death, he says this, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He presents us with this upside down way of thinking. He says, if you're trying to preserve your life now, to preserve your power like the religious leaders did, to gain wealth for yourself like Judas did, to live your best life today, you'll die spiritually. But if instead you consider your life, preserving your own life, nothing, you hate your life. He's not saying you're just depressed and mopey all the time. He's saying you're not seeking to clutch and hang on to your life in this world. You will keep it for eternal life. So seeking to preserve your life leads you to die. Being willing to die for the glory of God causes you to live. Then he goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Where is Jesus going when he says this? What's his path? He's going to the cross. Where will he be in just six days? Dying on the cross. So when Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, he's saying much more than just you need to do what I command. He's saying my path to glorify the Father is the path of giving up my own life. And if you would be my disciples, you must be willing to do the same. You must be willing to serve by following me, by going where I go, by walking the path I walk. And my path to glory is not like the world's path. It's the path of glory through death. It's the path of sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others. And so must your path be, Jesus says. King Jesus died to save God's people. He died to glorify the Father. And if we would be His disciples, we must be willing to do the same. That doesn't mean that we'll necessarily be martyred, but it does mean we won't seek to live our lives for ourselves. We'll seek to live our lives for God. That may mean, like Stephen Pray Keller, giving up the comforts of their life here to go to Jordan for the glory of God. That might mean giving up the things that our world loves, giving up the big house so that you can give money to the poor. It might mean giving of the best that you have in your current state of life like Mary did. But it does mean that if we follow Jesus, we have to embrace the cruciform way of Jesus. Glory to God through giving up our lives, not through seeking to live our lives for ourselves. In light of Jesus' sacrificial death for our salvation and the Father's glory, we must honor Him with the best that we have. We must serve Him by giving up our lives. The final thing I want us to see, and this is more for those here this morning who are not yet following Jesus, is that in light of Jesus' death to save God's people and glorify the Father, you ought to believe in Him. Jesus, having just spoken of how he's about to die, says, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. Jesus knows that this will be a hard thing that he is pursuing. And he says, what shall I say? Will I try to get out of it? Will I say, Father, save me from this hour? Spare me this death? No, Jesus says. For this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the whole point, Jesus says. All of this has been leading up to my death, and so I'm not going to turn aside from it now. Rather, I am going to seek the glory of the Father. He says, Father, glorify your name. 
And then the Father spoke to him from heaven and says, I will do just that. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You, my son, will go to the cross and you will glorify my name. But in so doing, the Father is also honoring Jesus. Though the crowd doesn't understand, though some think it's a voice that's thundering, others think an angel is speaking to him, Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And so that you'll all see that I'm the one sent from the Father. And then having just spoken of his commitment to go to the cross, and the Father having confirmed the Father's commitment to this path, Jesus lays out the glorious results that his death will bring. Now in the hour of his glory is the judgment of this world. Jesus' death throws down a gauntlet and all who reject him show themselves to be enemies of God. Jesus' death is a judgment death. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus' death disarms the power of Satan in our world. And because he disarms the power of Satan, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Not for the nation only, verse 52 of chapter 11, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus' death was to bring to himself those from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from all peoples, to himself. And so his is a universal death. Not universal in the sense of saving every individual. It's quite clear that some will remain in darkness and be judged. But universal in the sense of a universal gauntlet that is thrown down that demands that all people everywhere either believe in Jesus or reject Him. Jesus, when He is lifted up from the earth, draws people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Kenyans, through awakened love. Those in Jordan. The Lakota. Are many of us, Norwegians, Germans, Danes, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jesus says, will be forced to grapple with who He is as He is lifted up, both literally hanging on the cross and glorified, exalted on the cross. And so Jesus' death demands a response from every single person. And Jesus Himself calls for that response. Says verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness, those who do not believe in Jesus, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. My prayer is that all of us here would be walking in the light of Jesus, and so living our lives in service to him and seeking to honor him. But I fear that some perhaps are walking in darkness. And my plea with you would be to believe in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus will lead you to walk in life, but rejecting Him will leave you in darkness. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And don't stumble over Christ crucified. The crowd struggled with that. Verse 33-34, they said, We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. What are you talking about, about dying, Jesus? How can the Son of Man be lifted up? Who, What kind of Savior are you? But Jesus' death was necessary. It is the only path to life. It is a stumbling block for some, but may it not be a stumbling block for you. May you believe in Jesus. May you come to Him. And as we come to Him, may we serve Him, giving up our whole lives to follow Him. May we honor Him with our best. 
He deserves nothing less because He, King Jesus, died to save and to glorify the Father. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank You that You have glorified Your name through the death of Your Son, King Jesus. We thank You that Jesus did not seek to be saved from that hour, but that He willingly walked to the cross to die for us, to die for those from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would believe. So we ask that we would give You our best like Mary did, that we would follow Jesus and give up our lives, that those here this morning would believe. We pray that in all of this, You would be honored and You would be glorified. We ask this in His name. Amen.